Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I am honored to share with you Sean Pete's story. Sean is the leader of a NASCAR pit crew and then also later founded Deck Leadership. And he took the principles that the pit crew uses in getting things done, paying attention to the details, and making sure every second counts in his leadership as he talks with corporations now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I am honored to have Sean Pete. Uh, Sean has an absolutely fascinating story from uh, minor league hockey to NASCAR to performance coaching, and I guess we would just say, um, you know, helping different uh, organizations really figure out their leadership styles. And, uh, you know, one thing that I've picked up about Sean is he self-proclaimed says he's probably never been the most talented as he's been competing at different areas, but he's just willing to work the hardest. And so um, I think one uh, one thing that stuck out to me was he had a phrase that says, don't put periods where life intended to have commas. And I think as you hear his story today, you're going to hear a lot of examples of how he's uh, embraced the commas. So, Sean, thanks so much for being on. Bill, uh, thrilled to be here with you this afternoon, man. Thank you. Absolutely. So just for anyone, if you haven't listened before, uh, give you a brief rundown. Premise of the show is that as we're going through life, we oftentimes don't realize the magnitude of that moment, right? And uh, this life event happens. And in the moment, we may not realize that it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just something that's happening. And only in hindsight, can we recognize that that was the pivotal moment that took us to the next level and put us on the trajectory for where we are today. And so, Sean, for you, um, a story that you shared that I thought was super interesting was um, one time after one of your hockey tournaments, uh, you, you maybe hadn't performed your best. And you had just mentioned that your dad questioned uh, whether or not you had given it your all. And, you know, this was in, in a younger phase of life. And so I'd love to hear just how that impacted you then and how that's kind of carried on for you today. Yeah, I felt like that was one of my biggest who knew moments. Um, you know, we were, I grew up in Western Canada on Vancouver Island. And um, anytime you played a hockey tournament, a lot of times you had to take a ferry over to Vancouver. Um, on that return ride home, there's a time for introspection. And, you know, I grew up rich in a sense that we had a richness of life in our family, um, yeah. but economically we were lower middle class. You know, my parents had to work extremely hard just so I could play hockey. And my, yeah, my dad questioned me on the boat going home one day. He's like, look, I'll support you in anything you ever do, but I need you to put out max effort. And I don't think you did that. And I just, like I said, I remember him getting up every morning and how hard he worked. And I was like, first of all, I don't ever want to feel like this again. And I'm never going to make him feel that way again. And it, it honestly, it was like a light switch for me. I was like, you know what? I knew I wasn't the most talented, even at a young age. Um, but I said, the one thing that I can control is I can outwork everybody. And from that moment on, um, you know, I just set about, you know, making sure that whatever I did, it was, you know, a hundred percent. And I just never backed out of the gas. Absolutely. So that mindset and that mentality ends up earning you an opportunity to go play collegiate hockey at Dartmouth. Correct. Correct. So yeah, that mentality, um, like I said, when he said it to me, I was the worst kid on my hockey team. Right. And then I went to midget and I was the worst kid on that team. And then I made it to junior a and I was the worst, I was leveling up, but I was always the worst guy on the team. Um, 
But what happened was, you know, when you're in Western Canada, a lot of the scouts come out at the first part of the year. because it's just too far to go once they get into their season. Right. And I knew that. I said, there's going to be more eyes on me in the first nine games than the rest of the season. So that summer, I was traded to uh, another team and I worked my guts out, right? Like, like Friday nights, it didn't matter. Like I was trying to become a better hockey player. Well, what, that was before, you know, kids are spending all their off seasons getting in shape. So even though I wasn't the best player on the ice, I was in such far superior conditioning that I looked like one of the better players on the ice. So I started fast. The scouts came out. Um, we were nine games in. I think I had 16 goals and, you know, 14 or 15 assists and 100 penalty minutes. And they're like, oh, my gosh, who's this guy? Yeah. Um, so I got a bunch of offers early. Uh, you know, you tack on the next 40 games and I only got – nine more goals and uh but but again you know if I don't have that moment with my dad you know I don't put myself in that position to go and play U.S. college hockey and you know you, you know these Canadian mill towns um you know you're working in the mill and if you get out of town you're lucky and I felt very fortunate um especially to go to a place like Dartmouth absolutely now something I want to dig into there and, and you say this about pretty much your entire hockey career that is you know I was always good enough to make the team or I was always good enough to level up but I was one of the lower skilled or calibered players on the team now for a lot of people when they are on the lower tier they just say you know what maybe it's not worth it that seems really hard like it's going to take a lot of effort to even get in the top half what is it about Sean that really made you want to keep competing and just keep trying to get better and better? Uh, it, it's two things. It's, it's dauntless resolution okay. and unconquerable faith. And that's a North Carolina thing here with the Wright brothers, but they're just, there are going to be plenty of people in your life that tell you you can't do it. There are plenty mm -hmm. of people in my hometown that told me that. Um, and that's why like, I cringe sometimes when people are like, Oh, you're a motivational speaker. I'm not. Right, because there could there was not a motivational speaker alive that could have helped me <laughs> recreate the fire that I had in myself to see it through. Yeah, and you know what I mean. It's just it's too hard. So, um, you know, I just hung on those two things, and you know, I was lucky. You know, my my folks were always you know told me that you know someone else's opinion of you is none of your business. First of all, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and either you believe in it or you don't. And the thing is, is you know these these people in life they're so apt to give up you have no idea how close you are right. and my thought was that if i could all if i could just get in the room right if i could just get in the locker room that year coach would see how hard i worked i'd pick up skills from this person this person this person I, now by the end of the year i wasn't the worst person yeah you know, but always at the start of the year i was the worst person right like i'm i won i won the most improved award at dartmouth twice in four years <laughs> You're, you're not a good player if you're winning most improved twice in four years. So, um, but uh, yeah, and, and it just, it shows, right? Like I wish I had video of myself when I played in younger days, because it would be an inspiration for every person playing hockey. And even if anyone playing sports are like, oh my God, this guy can, this guy can do it. Um, but again, it, it, it boils down to what's in your heart. And, and if you yeah. really want it bad enough, you will fight and claw to get it. Absolutely. Now, as you were talking about, you, you had made the comment that sometimes when you're working towards something, you just don't know how close you are. And uh, a little while back, this is maybe a few years ago, I, I had this kind of like realization. I wish my life played music like a movie does, right? Because in the movie, you know when something's about to go good and you know when something's about to go bad because the music plays. Unfortunately, in this thing called life, it's 
there, there's no music playing, right? There's no crescendo knowing that you're <laughs> almost about to break through. I agree. That would be, uh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Right. Just give me yeah. a little hint, right? It could be soft, but I just want to know a little bit about it. So absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So, so as the time at Dartmouth comes to an end, uh, you, once again, you have a career where you continue to progress, do well. And Dartmouth is a prestigious school and you get faced with a tough choice. Correct. And, and again, here's another moment. Like I said, I arrived at Dartmouth with a richness of life, but no, never been around like real money before. Yeah. And, you know, you get to freshman parents weekend and it's the, the gnarliest car show you've ever seen, right? <laughs> like it's just people trying to outdo each other. But what struck me when I was there was I couldn't believe how many kids had a terrible relationship with their parents or didn't talk to them at all, mm. or were just inherently miserable. You know, even though they had all this, all this stuff that, you know, you were told is going to make you happy if you can ever get your hands on it. Yeah. Um, so I got a peek behind the curtain and, and, you know, from that moment on, I was like, you know what, in my life, I'm going to pursue joy. I'm going to mm. go after what lights me up. And that I think it will, will get me through life. So I had the choice. I could go to, you know, Dartmouth, a big corporate banking school. It was go to wall street and for 50 grand or 60 grand to start or go to Corpus Christi and play minor league hockey for 350 bucks a week. And uh, I chose the latter. <laughs> Which, yeah, once again, I want to highlight, it was 350 a week, right? Like, week. Uh, yeah, it's not like we were debating, you know, this million dollar contractor, you know, this good corporate job. It was 350 a week. Yeah, yeah. And I think they paid your phone bill. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really, it was great. <laughs> so with that, uh, I, I love what you said about, I wanted to pursue joy. Yeah, I, I think that's such a, uh, a big differentiator. Um, you know, happiness comes and goes, right? Uh, you know, happiness is potentially a, a moment, you know, something like that. But joy is something inside of you, right? I mean, joy is right. something you can really find. So talk a little bit about what about hockey brought you joy? Um, just being just being part of something bigger than myself. Yeah. I love that, right, that I could contribute and make something better. Mm. Um, you know, I was never growing up. I never played individual sports. You know, I really gravitated towards a team game, um, and 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 I think that that brought me joy. Just like that childlike, the chase, right? You grew up in Canada. Your goal is to play in the National Hockey League. Like going after that dream. Um, you know that that was the fuel, and that was all I needed. And and you know, I thought this is the only time I'm ever going to be able to do this in my life. So why wouldn't I take that shot? You know, there's a corporate job waiting for me if, if, if this doesn't turn out. Um, and, and I'm lucky because I had parents that had no problem me taking a Dartmouth degree and just shelving it and going to play minor league hockey. So, you know, again, it's a testament to them as well. Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, because I'm sure whether it was um, friends, teachers, professors, there's probably some people that gave like this head scratching, like, Sean, are you sure this is the best idea? So the question I would have for you is, you know, how do or how should people be willing to listen to their close circle, but yet not always take exactly what they're saying for granted or, you know, for the truth, if they truly feel like something else is better or going to bring them more joy? I think it's going after your passion, right? And, yeah. and passion is your, the intersection of talent, market, and excuse me, uh, talent, market, and, um, and passion. Mm -hmm. right that that's that's your calling yeah um was i passionate about hockey absolutely yeah uh, was there a market for really good defensemen there was 
Yeah. Was I talented? No, I had no talent. <laughs> no talent. So my calling wasn't to be a hockey player. I didn't realize that till later in life. But um, those were the three things I went off of, right? And I, yeah. I wanted, if it wakes you up at night, that's mm. what you should be doing in life, right? Mm. And so many of us just get stuck in this rut where we think, okay, well, we need the Mercedes and we need this and we need that. When two weeks after you buy the Mercedes, it's just the car that takes you to work, yep. you know? And, uh, you know, so like I said, like that was so important for me coming out of Dartmouth because then it was, it's followed me the rest of my life, even which race teams I decided to, to, to sign with. Um, I always thought, okay, would I, you know, will I enjoy the atmosphere and the culture there more of the app? That's where I'm going. Mm, that's good. Now, were there any coaches in your career that really had a profound impact on you or, you know, really instilled in you like, hey, Sean, you could do this, right? You could play professional. You could play at the next level if it was a high school to college or a college to pros. Yeah, there was a there was a couple guys. Like there was uh, my last coach when I was still in the in the uh, like minor hockey, right? Like back home hockey. Yeah, um, was just a brilliant guy. His name was Bill Bestwick. Um, you know, it's funny. My grandfather passed away when I was playing for him, and it's the first ever grown man that came up, hugged me, and said, "Hey, I love you, kid." And I just remember uh... that had a profound impact on me. And he was just an advocate for me because he just, you know, he, he was from my hometown. So he saw how hard I was going after it. Mm. And when no one else was beating the table for me, he was, and he wasn't even my coach at the time when I got the scholarship, but it was him talking to the Dartmouth scouts that ultimately, um, you know, sealed the deal for me. So, you know, and he was just, he was kind. Yeah. Right? He was, he had emotional intelligence. I think so many coaches, go at about this the wrong way right and we're still think that the Vince Lombardi stuff is effective and it's not right where it's, if you're a coach your job is to inspire human brilliance mm. and by doing that you do that by by hitting on the humanness of people right and, yeah. and um yeah it just he, he had a profound impact still does I still talk to him this day you know I had a couple of great ones down the line um you know, Pat Dunn uh, was a guy I played for in pro. Bill McDonald, um, you know, I think those guys came along later in life and really helped me sort out, you know, a couple things that um, I always wanted to be, because I was always the worst player, I always wanted to be a player that, you know, was relied upon. Yeah. And that happened my last couple of years playing for those two guys. And, you know, I was the captain of New Mexico my last two years. And, um, you know, it that was the crowning achievement. It wasn't going right. all the way to the American Hockey League. It was, look, this is this is our foundation. We're building off this, and um, yeah, it was a huge honor for me. And I'll, I'll never forget the day I was I was awarded the captaincy, and um, one of the proudest days of my life. Absolutely. I, I mean, that's to your point. I mean, that's about as great of an accomplishment as one can get is right being voted or nominated the the captain of the squad. Right. Right. And it took. Uh, you know, it took uh, <laughs> took a bunch of fist fights and some other stuff to get there, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome, man. So maybe awesome. they maybe you got voted that because they didn't want to get in a fight with you. They knew you <laughs> might just beat them up if they didn't. Uh, exactly, do that. exactly. So talk about your idea of leadership at that point, and I know this would be hard. I'm going to ask you to hold out leadership as you view it today, and just you know you've obviously grown and evolved in, you know, how you define leadership, you know, at this point, but back then, you know, what were the things that as a leader you were trying to do for the team? That's a great question. So it was basically two things. It was care about all our guys, mm. right. And treat them like brothers. So if, like, if, if anyone laid a hand on any of my teammates, I was the first one to arrive on the scene. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and secondly was to hold people accountable. 
right? Minor league hockey, you get kids from college, you get kids from junior, you get kids, you know, you get all super talented guys that just don't have their life in order. Um, so it was to enforce the standard, yeah. right? And we wanted this to be our standard. Um, I remember we were playing in Memphis one year and three of our guys, we had a 10 o'clock curfew and three of our guys, Memphis was notorious for having uh, like one of the best um, nightclubs on the circuit. And three of our guys decided to frequent the nightclub and coach caught them coming in at like three in the morning. So we're gearing up for practice and I get called into the coach's office and he's like, Hey, I want you to know um, this guy, this guy, and this guy uh, were out all night. And he didn't have to say anything more. He's like, I know you'll handle it. So we went out to practice. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do. um, I told two of the other guys on the team that, you know, we're, we're pretty tough guys. And when practice started, these guys got run through the boards, right? Like there was a couple of drills where, and they, we got the first two and the third guy knew it was coming for him. So he was running scared the rest of practice till we finally got him in the, in the crosshairs. But uh, you know, that was my early thought of leadership. It was, you know, hold people accountable. um, However heavy handed you got to be, and, and care about them. I think it's evolved into a more, um, as the person in charge, you know, leadership at its very essence is selflessness, mm-hmm. right? Like if you've ever done something for someone else with no thought or reward, you have what it takes to be a leader. Yeah. And, you know, so now I try to serve, you know, mm-hmm. I try to make sure our guys have everything they need to succeed. I make sure that we've created the environment where they can shine. Um, we know everything about them, right? Like I know every single guy and girl on our pit crew, I know their birthdays. I know their parents' birthdays. I know their anniversaries. I know, I know everything. So when I go to practice, I have 26 athletes. We'll be warming up and I'll put my hand on a kid's shoulder and be like, Hey, don't forget to call your dad. It's his birthday today. Right. That creates a profound impact, whether that's on a pit crew in a corporate setting doesn't matter where you're at it just shows that there's another level of, of, of care there that hey i'm invested in you you know Absolutely. we had a we had a guy he was carrying tires out back and it was getting late and the guy I run the department with mike metcalf he's like isn't isn't this guy's anniversary and i was like oh <laughs> yeah i think it is well <laughs> so we go back there and mike's like hey man you need to get out of here it's your anniversary and the guy looks at me he's like no it's not and mike's like no, it's your anniversary. And this guy's wife is affectionately known as the warden. Like not a lady, <laughs> not a lady you want to disappoint. Yes. And uh, all of a sudden he's like, well, what day is it? And we're like, it's Wednesday the 26th. And he's like, oh my God. Like you just saw his look on his face. But we helped him, you know, get a bottle of wine and make dinner reservations and whatever. And we saved this guy. We ask, a, <laughs> we ask a lot of our people. And the very least that we can do is care about him. So mm. again, it's... um. You know, and I think a lot of times that's that's the problem with leadership in this country right now, right? Yeah. Like we have more heart attacks in the United States on Monday morning than any other time during the week. And that's mm. a direct reflection of leadership because we're yeah. worried about our lake house or our boat or our heart. You know what I mean? And it's not, yeah. we've forgotten how to care about people. And, so, and I, sorry, Go ahead. No, go ahead. So we're just, you know, Mike and I are very passionate about, you know, leaders caring for people. Yeah, we had we had in this conversation with a guy and, uh, you know, he was one of those guys you could tell just an eager, you know, ladder climber, you know, yeah. wants to work in middle management. And he's like, guys, guys, 
I need to get to the sea level and I need you guys to tell me how to do it. And I said, sea level. I said, okay, like CEO. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, uh, okay, what does the C and CEO stand for? And he says, it stands for chief. And I said, okay, well, have you ever thought of how a young Indian warrior ascends to the position of chief? And he's like, no, I've, I've never given it any thought. And I said, well, a young Indian warrior sets out and all he, all he or she cares about is the wholeness of the group, how mm. it's clothed, how it's fed, how it's protected, right? Yeah. And it spends themselves selflessly to assure that end. And although their goal isn't set out to be the chief because of their actions, they become the chief. Mm. I said, do you know what the number one character trait of a psychopath is? It's profound lack of empathy. So what sounds like what's going on in this country right now? CEO <laughs> or PEO? So I said, if you want to, if you, if you want to ascend to the, the C level, it's this simple, act like a chief. Wow. And that's what it is, man. So something that you said multiple times as you were talking there was, and it started with talking about the three guys that had gone out the night before and you had to talk to them. Then it tra transitioned into how you guys operate today, but use the word care. Yeah. And the thing that I think is misunderstood with that, and I'd love to hear your insight is sometimes you have to challenge people or you have to hold them accountable because you care. Right. right? I think sometimes it's perceived as like, Oh man, that guy was rude to me or he, not rude, but you know, he held me accountable to what I said I was going to do. Like he's mean. And it's like, well, no, it's, I, I had to hold you accountable at practice the next day because we're a team, right? Like you making those selfish choices are hurting our team, right? I, I had to care about this guy's, you know, wife, because if something's not good at home, when he shows up the next day and we need him to be clicking like this and he's not able to, it's because we didn't care enough. So would you talk a little bit more about the caring part in both of those dynamics? Well, absolutely. Like, you know, there's a misconception that high performing teams are devoid of conflict. Yeah. And, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if, if you have a team that's devoid of conflict, that's not harmony, that's apathy, uh, right? And if, yes. If you, if you really love someone, you'll be straight up with them and dead honest because you want the best out of them, right? Like I look back on my career and I look at the coaches that really pushed me, that took yeah. me out of just making peace with mediocrity. And I love those guys. And when I hung up the skates the last time, I wrote letters to every single one of them. Wow. And when I graduated from Dartmouth, I wrote letters to every single teacher that was hard on me, all the way back to grade three, my grade seven teacher, my high school math teacher, and thanked them. As I gained wisdom being on this planet for 45 years, I despise the coaches that told me I was good when I knew I wasn't yeah. again, because they were allowing me to make peace with mediocrity. And, and when you, that may be fine in the moment, but when you look back, those people, you won't even remember those people because they did nothing for you. Mm, that's huge. I love that. That's good. That is good. So getting into the hockey again, right? So you, you have this phenomenal, uh, you know, professional career and it comes to a culmination with an incident uh, in a hockey game where you, you just had to take care of a guy and that, that leads into a suspension, which is very important. But I want to hear, like, in that moment of the suspension, how did you feel about it? Because, once again, the music wasn't playing, right? We didn't know what was going to come from that. So how were you feeling in that moment? Well, I, I was feeling defeated, right? Mm -hmm. I just... 
I had just come down from the American Hockey League, right? I was on the ice for game five of the Calder Cup finals, which is the highest you can get without actually getting to the National Hockey League. And I had made the opening day team. Pittsburgh makes a trade late and I'm one of the guys that gets sent down. So my goal is to come down, start fast and get, and go right back up. Yep. Right. So I get in, you know, there was an opening night brawl. Um, I got involved cause I felt I needed to solve it and I was suspended for 18 games. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sitting in the stands thinking, you know, wow, this is over. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, I've worked my whole life. I was sniffed. I was, a, you know, an eyelash short of it. Um, and now it's going the other way, you know, and like you said at the onset, you know, the one thing that I've always held to is, you know, don't insert periods where life intended a comma. Yeah. And had I done that, had I said, you know what, I'm suspended for 25% of the season. I'm just going to go home and be a firefighter. I would be at home being a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Noble, noble position. You know, but I wouldn't have had the gift, which is, is, is this life that I absolutely revere. Yeah. And what it took was me thinking, okay, that door shut, what's open. And yeah. sure enough, you know, because I was open to experiencing whatever's going to come my way, I run into a fan that's in NASCAR. And next thing you know, I'm on a tour of one of the race shops with my dad in North Carolina and get asked to hop into pit practice, which leads to this whole, whole next step in my life. Yeah. So to give like a 30 second version of that. So Sean's suspended. And if I understand it right, there's a, a lady that's at the game and she calls her husband and his, her husband's in the NASCAR world and says, you can't, you got to get back so you can catch this guy. Like he's a fighter. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was a big fan of the fighters. And she's like, you gotta get a load of this guy. So I met him, you know, he's in NASCAR and, and I said, yeah, my dad has a garage on Vancouver Island. He's like, well, when he comes, we'll take him around the race shops. Yeah. And this is back when mechanics were pitting the cars. So, uh, you know, they convinced me to hop into practice and I was like, no, it, but they were insistent. So I went and uh, I was as fast as a guy who had went for five years and knew and, nothing. I mean, relatively nothing, right. Relatively I mean. nothing. Right. And, um, you know, I thought they were joking around. So I played the next year out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then I get a call and they're like, no, we're serious, man. You want to do this? And um, so I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. Again, it goes back to the chasing joy stuff. I've never pitted race cars in NASCAR before. Why not? Um, So I went and, uh, and had a blast. And you know, what's interesting, Bill is I know I'm a builder at heart. My whole life, all I wanted was a regular shift, you know, be a part of the team that contribute. Yeah. My last few years, I was a captain in New Mexico. Yeah. The challenge for me was complete. You know what I mean? And it was time for, well, this is, this seems like it would be a lot of fun. And so I was willing to step away from everything I knew to pursue this thing because I thought there would be, it'd be fun. Now I thought I would do it for one year and then go back to Canada and coach. And that was 17 years ago now. (laughs) Well, so one thing that I want to point out and highlight as, you know, I've gotten to know you and your story is I think, and well, I guess I'm not going to tell you this is how you feel, but it was interesting how you mentioned, you know, all the time in hockey, you always were felt like you were on the lower skill level and you had to work your way up. And I thought to myself, I wonder if Sean had been the all-star, if he would have been willing to make that transition, you know, would Sean have been willing to say, you know what? I'll go be the new guy in a profession I don't know much about. And I'm guessing you're probably the low man on the totem pole, you know, because you got people have been there five Mm -hmm. years. 
And once again, any climate, you're going to get treated just a little bit differently for being the new guy. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if Sean would have done that. Had he always been the, the best player on the team or had he always been, you know, the most skilled? Yeah. So that's a great, the great question. And, and again, my wife and I literally have sat on the barn porch and talked about it multiple nights that, yeah. you know, this is going to sound strange to say, but my biggest blessing is that I wasn't talented because mm. it forced me to work. And the thing is being talented at hockey or football or baseball from seven years old to 17 years old only gets you so far. Yeah. Right. This skill set that I had to develop because I was going after the talented kids is going to serve me for a lifetime. Yes. Right. And and I, I think that uh, when I look back, I absolutely believe that the hard work and all the things I, I had to implement in my life because I didn't have the talent is what allowed me. Like I said, um, I feel like I haven't worked a day in my life. Yeah. I would not trade lives with anybody. You know, yep. like, and I think that there's not a lot of people that could say that. Right. right? And, and it's not, that I haven't had hard days and hard times in my life, but like I wake up ready to go because I'm excited about what I'm doing. Absolutely. I love that. So as you join NASCAR, as I understand you're, you're the Jackman. I was. So I started out as a Jackman at Bill Davis racing. Yeah. Um, I was there for about six weeks and then uh, got called up to the cup series. Oh, and wow. I laugh and tell people like I tried for 28 years to get to the national hockey league and I made it to NASCAR in six weeks. So, <laughs> um, but I loved it. It was, uh, it was thrilling. It was this um, adrenaline rush, right? Like these cars come down pit road at 55 miles an hour, your yeah. heels are they're inches off your heels. And so like when people ask, what's it like to be a pit crew person, go out to the interstate, <laughs> put your, put your heels on the white line and turn your back to traffic and if traffic blowing by you, that close doesn't unnerve you, then you have what it takes to be a pit crew person. Give Sean a call. Give Sean yeah, a call. You call. can come work out. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about, you know, your time getting that opportunity and working on the pit crew team, because this is going to be important to, you know, what you're doing today. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the moment for me was uh, our last road trip in Albuquerque. We went from Albuquerque to Shreveport, to Indianapolis, back to Wichita, back to Albuquerque. It was like 3,000 miles on a bus to end the yeah. year. I had already seen that these NASCAR teams drive to the airport, get on a chartered plane, land at the racetrack, rental car. Like it was, and for me, I was like, okay, this is the direction I'm going to go. Um, and when I started, like I said, athletes were just coming into it. And a good yeah. pit stop then was about 15 seconds. Okay. Um, you know, so our job is to train it was basically five guys back then it was seven people had to change four tires and put two cans of gas in it in 16 seconds. Now it's five people have to put four tires and two cans of gas in it in 10 seconds. It's crazy. And it's just, yeah. Um, so yeah, we started out, started out on the circuit, did really well. Um, again, had offers from better teams. Yeah. Um, but didn't like the culture. You know, mm. I was, you know, I could have gone, I could have gone to one team and I would have won seven championships and I have no regrets not going. Cause I went, I, instead I went to Red Bull and had probably, you know, five of the best years of my life in, in NASCAR. Um, and it, yeah, it was just, uh, it was amazing. And, and because of the way I carried myself and how hard I worked at it, it led to opportunities to start coaching like minor league, like truck teams and stuff like that. So I was a Jackman for 12 years 
And then I was asked by a company if I could help with some of their coaching. So I started doing both. Wow. So inside of those 12 years, and I, I'm just curious, how much turnover comes through? Or is it pretty much like, hey, you know, we had a core group of guys or do a lot of people kind of, like you said, get offers and they just leave and go to other teams for more money or, you know, whatever it might be? There, there's a ton of turnover, yeah. right? Because speed, you know, what we're doing is such a you know, we don't have the depth, like there's not a minor league NASCAR system, right? right? So the thing is, if you can adopt a skill set, right? Think of the money in this, okay? Like we said, there's five people on a pit crew. There's the fuel person that has to plug a hundred pound can into a race car in under 0.3 seconds. There's a tire carrier that has to take two 65 pound tires out to the right side of the car and have one of those tires mounted on the hub in under 0.8 seconds. There's a jack man that has to lift a 3,500 pound car with one stroke of the jack. And there's two tire changers who have to hit five lug nuts in under a second. So that's two tenths of a second per lug nut. Yeah. So if you would go ahead and blink your eyes for me, that's about two tenths of a second. In, in our world, that, that equates to about $1.1 million. Wow. And now I'm sure some of your listeners are like, there's no way that's true. Yeah. But if you look at the race car math, these cars are moving at 190 feet per second. Okay. So 56 feet or excuse me, two tenths of a second at 190 feet per, uh, per second is um, 56 feet. If you look at the finishing order at the day 2500, 56 feet is the difference between first and sixth. Wow. Five money is $1.1 million. So there's a lot riding on it. And, um, and again, so it behooved these teams to go get better athletes. Right. Yeah. I came in, I was a B minus C plus athlete. Right now we have a linebacker from the Steelers. Right? We have a kid that led Clemson in tackles for two years. Yeah. Uh, we have some uh, high caliber baseball players. We had an Olympic swimmer. We've had two United States Navy SEALs. Um, we have a linebacker from the Redskins, you know, so, or just a Washington football team, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, the athletic acumen of these kids just keeps ratcheting up. So I'm curious as to this. You know, when you're operating with such small margins and you have to do things so quickly, that first time, I mean, the jitters have to be there, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but in a lot of sports, you can afford to have some jitters and it's not going to be a big deal. When you have to operate within a 0.2 second, you know, operation of 0.8 second, I mean, you don't, you just don't get the chance to have like a, a jittered shot or a jittered throw. It's like, no, you got to be clicking right away. You got to go, you know, and it was interesting. My first race, Phil, we were in uh, Kentucky and at pit practice, you just have your pit practice car come in. Right. And I got really good at that, but I had no experience. So I get to go to Kentucky the same weekend as my high school reunion. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in Kentucky. It's uh, and I'm in NASCAR. This is crazy. Right. First caution flag flies of the day. It's about 96 degrees there. So it's baking hot. Sun is glistening. All 40 cars come down pit road at the same time. I won't remember. I only pitted one car at a time. So I'm like, Oh my God. I don't know where, I have no idea where our car is because all you see is sunshine on all the, and uh, if, thankfully the first one went, went well, but uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, one of the things that we preach in our organization is that, you know, you have to have the ability to fail quickly, yeah. you know, and we encourage our, our people to fail quickly because, you know, we operate right on the verge of human possibility. Mm -hmm. um, 
So much so, like I told you, that we, we, we refer to our department as the Department of Unrealistic Expectations because, yeah. I mean, we're pushing every limit parameter of human performance. And when you do that, that line that lies right up against failure. And there's a very fine line between the two of them. So if we reprimand our guys for failing, they're not going to be the best version of themselves. But when we allow them to fail quickly, um, we allow them to, you know, go out there with their best expression, right? Okay. So when we say that, fail quickly means that if the car comes in and you miss the first lug nut, fail quickly and hit the next five succinctly. Okay. Or if you fail on the right side of the car, as you transition to the left, shed that. And when you start hitting lug nuts, be the best tire changer on pit road. Like we don't go into the weekend thinking, okay, if we don't fail, we'll have a good weekend. We know we're going to fail. Yep. It's how quickly we can overcome our failures, extract the positives and the teaching moments out of them and scrap the rest. That's what makes us successful or not. So can, can I ask you, and you may or may not know this just off the top of your head, when was the first time in, in your life that you remember being told it was okay to fail or not, you know, not be perfect at something? Do you remember oh, having someone my, say my that mom, <laughs> My mom used to say it all the time. Uh, okay. <laughs> obviously, I had a pretty high rate of failure in the, in the early days. Um, you know, I got that a lot because I worked hard. And I think yeah. when, you, when you work hard and you mess up, you know, there's some leniency with coaches that were like, okay, I know this kid's giving me everything he's got. I can handle that failure, Yeah. right? It's when you're slacking off or you're not about it or you're selfish and you fail, that's when the hammer's coming down. Yeah. So I was very lucky because I was that role player that if there was a failure, coach knew it wasn't because of laziness or a mental lapse. It was just, you know. Yeah. The, the reason I ask, and once again, today's about you, but I'll share this. So I, I wasn't a hockey guy. I was a basketball guy. But I, uh, starting in like the fifth grade, I would ask this coach if he'd open the gym for me at 5 a.m. and I'd go. And most days he would just open the gym. He would leave. And that was the extent of, you know, our interaction. But a couple of times he would sit there and he would watch me, you know, do a drill or he'd watch me do a workout. And I remember one day I was dribbling and I was dribbling hard, you know, like because I wanted to get better. But I never lost control of the basketball. And I remember him just stopping me and he goes, dude, you're not going hard enough. And I go, I'm going as fast as I can. He goes, if you're going as fast as you can, you would have lost a basketball by now. He goes, you need to learn right here how to get better. So that way in the game, you don't lose the ball. And I just, you know, as I look back on that, I'm like, that was a game changing moment because it allowed me to realize to your point, like failing is not a bad thing as long as I was trying hard, right? It wasn't because I just didn't give effort. Right. And like failings are like we all say all the time is the first act in learning. Mm. Right. And we get failure wrong. We think, you know, we look at successful people and think they've never failed. <laughs> no, they probably fail the most, right? You got it. They stand on a mountain of failures. The only, they just do two things better than us. They don't let it stop them and they don't let it define them. Yes. Right? And your coach, I mean, look at the lesson that you're, that coach imparted on you. Right. And that's what so many of us are guilty of is that it's not like you thought you were, you thought you were flat out. Right. Yeah. And what most of us are guilty of is not that we aim too high and we miss or so it's not that we aim too high and we hit yeah. or miss. It's that we aim too low and we hit yep. and we think, okay, this is the best I can do. And we're capable of so much more than that. I love it. That's, that's spot on. That is spot yeah. on. So in your time at NASCAR, you meet a gentleman named Mike Metcalf. How yep. the heck do you, how the heck do the two of you meet? Cause this becomes a very important partnership. It does. So, um, you know, Mike had a very similar story to me, knew nothing about NASCAR, gets in it through a, a, a friend of a friend, starts out at Ebernham Motorsports, 
And when Red Bull builds their team, Red Bull's like, we are only going to go after athletes. So I was coming from Chip Ganassi Racing. Mike was coming from Everham. And you, you know, you put the two toughest kids in the room, they're going to lock horns at some point, right? <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't fighting locking horns. Mike is, uh, Mike is freakishly strong. And when I was at Dartmouth, I won a lot of the strength and conditioning awards. When I was in the minors, I was oftentimes one of the strongest guys on the team. So I hadn't been knocked off the, 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 the podium in a long time. So we start doing this and, and I, I'm barely hanging on in some exercises. I'm getting absolutely killed in others. And I'll never forget, we had to uh, max out on leg press. Mm. So I went first and I did, you know, 60 or 80. And Mike comes behind me and does 120. And, I, and I'm choked. I'm like, okay. So I spent all off season just working, trying to get stronger. So we test the next year and I come back and I do 131. Mike sits on the leg press. He puts a towel over his eyes and he busted out 240. And basically, <laughs> basically all it was, was a warning shot to me to be like, Hey, you have nothing for me. You have nothing for me. So, you know, I think, um, you know, you couldn't find two more differing people on the surface, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like everything from, um, you know, how we view religion to, you know, he's a black guy, I'm a white guy, American, Canadian. But you know what, if I can give your listeners one piece of advice, it's find the most unbelievable human being you can find and hit your wagon to him because, because, because okay. Mike's that guy. And, um, he's just, he's, he's a world-class human being. And, and I've been lucky that, uh, I was certainly lucky to be in the room with them. That's for sure. That's phenomenal. So from your experience in getting to operate together, uh, you formed deck leadership, right? Yes. Now talk a little bit just about what deck leadership all encompasses. And then uh, there, there's a couple of stories that are really, uh, really cool with deck. Absolutely. So, so deck leadership is an acronym. It stands for diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. And Mike and I truly believe those are the four horsemen of the American workplace. Like if, you're, if your culture is not operating optimally, it often comes down to one of those things or multiples of those things uh, because we just, we, have, we just get them wrong. And, you know, Mike and I's job is to build the fastest teams on the planet. You know, we know how to build high-performing teams. And, you know, that was a lot of these things that we learned translate over into, into corporate America. You know, we didn't, we didn't think we had anything to say. We were NASCAR pit crew coaches and we get, um, we get invited up to Indianapolis to speak at the NFL combine. Yep. And uh, we go up there and uh, we didn't think it went very well. 30 minutes, um, middle of the third day. And as we're leaving, you know, there's all these coaches, you, you know, um, doctors and trainers for all these NFL teams. And it was the chiefs and the saints and the Texans and, um, we, you know, start and talk to them and we're leaving the uh, convention hall and this guy tracks us down the hallway and he says, Hey fellas, I need, you to know, um, I took more notes in your 30 minutes than they have the first two days of this conference. And we get into this really great talk and he's like, well, who are you with? And he's with, I'm, I'm with the new England Patriots. And right then though, we, we decided maybe, maybe we do have something to say that could benefit people. Yeah. And it was awesome. Like it, it led to an opportunity. We got to go out, um, and we, we were with the Kansas city chiefs, you yeah. know, and it was cool. We we're down in the weight room talking to um, Eric Bienemy, and the trainer gets a call and it's, it's the big guy. And he's like, I want to see the NASCAR guy. So we go up to Andy Reed's office. Um, we're talking to Andy Reed. What a brilliant 
human being he is. Yeah. He, uh, I'll tell you a quick story about him. He, um, he's so intelligent. When he goes on vacation, he can read a book and listen to a separate audio book at the same time. Wow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but we get in this great talk with coach and, and what's crazy. It was going really well. And he looked at his watch and he's like, fellas, I'd love to continue this, but I have dinner with Garth Brooks tonight. <laughs> We're like, yeah, you should probably go. You should probably go. Sean, yeah, where, Pete, where's Mike our Mike plus Catherine. two? Yeah, exactly. Sean, Pete, Mike Metcalf or Garth Brooks. So he made the right decision. That's why he's a champion. I think he should have just brought the forces together. Who knows? I mean, it could have solved all the world's problems at that. You minute. got it, right? So it was it was an awesome experience. And we've since, like I said, in the NFL, we've since worked with the uh, done some work with the Cowboys as well. So just in regards to that, and you know, you talked about well, the two of us kind of agreed that hey, these four core horsemen, you know, are the essential parts of a team, a leadership. I mean, whatever it is. So how did you incorporate that originally with your team that you guys worked on? And then, you know, what sparked the idea of starting the business with it? So that's a great question. It comes in a couple parts. So Mike and I understood that when we took over at Chip Ganassi Racing, our budget is half. Okay. Mm -hmm. We had to compete with Hendrick and Joe Gibbs, and Stuart Haas, and we had to do it with half the money. So you're not going to out-talent them. Right. Right. So what we decided was we we're like, you know what, let's weaponize our culture. Let's make mm. this a really difficult place to leave. Yeah. Right? Let's care about them. Let's make it fun every single day that they show up to work. Let's um, weave an intentional congruence of competition throughout the entire building. So that's where the culture piece for us came. And, you know, it was trial and error over the course of about six years. And we hit on a bunch of things and we've only had one kid leave in the whole time we've been here. Wow. That was a culture piece. Okay. Efficiency yeah. speaks for itself. The diversity part. Um, when Mike and I became pit crew coaches, uh, we were only, we were just pit crew guys, right? We weren't pit crew coaches. And one thing that we understood was that when we became pit crew coaches, that we would not have the answers for everything. Mm -hmm. And what we thought is if we can bring more diversity to the table, that, there is a better chance that someone at the table is going to have the key that unlocks the answer that we don't have. Yes. So Mike and I use a team acronym for diversity. So we are looking for diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of age, and diversity of motor. Mm. Right? That's diversity. Yeah. Right? We didn't start out being like, we need to hire this many black people, this many white people, this many, that's not where, first of all, our number one recruiting criteria is we put nothing above being a world-class human being. If Love you're it. that, you can be with us. And then we want people that have had, you know, we want Trump guys as much as we want Biden guys and yep. girls. We want, uh, you know, kids that didn't have a, you know, have the best upbringing and kids that had a really stable one. We want quiet introspective people. And we want, you know, the, the ones that bring the juice to practice yeah. every day. We yep. want, you know, that, that's what we want. We want the, we want the 10 year veteran that has wisdom. We want the two year rookie um, that's seeing everything with new eyes. Yeah. That's diversity. Yep. That's diversity. So, you know, it's interesting. We, when we were hired to do a lot of our presentations, it was always culture. It was culture, 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 culture. Right. Then obviously the events of July, 2020 happened. Yeah. Murder George Floyd. Then everyone's reaching out to us for diversity. Right. right. And I have the most racially diverse pit crew in the history of NASCAR. Wow. In the history of NASCAR. Um, 
And look, if we can make it work in NASCAR, no company <laughs> listening to this has an excuse not to make it work. <laughs> Agreed. There's been some, there's some stories for another time where it's gotten pretty rough because there's, you know, there's, there's, it, it's not the environment that just lends itself to this succeeding. So we had to fight right. for it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, what was interesting is NASCAR was the first major sport to mandate um, D&I training before you were allowed to go to the racetrack. Mm. And they hired deck leadership to do that. So it was a huge honor to go in there and, um, you know, it, it was nerve wracking, but, but, you know, it's one of those things it's, um, you know, again, stepping out of your comfort zone, it, it was time. And, and so the sport's trying to evolve and we're trying to help the sport evolve. I, one, we're going to have to uh, record episode two and we will get some of the good stories about all this. Yeah. Uh, but two, I love how you lead with world-class humans, right? Like that, that was number one. It didn't start with four-year degree. It didn't start with this background. It didn't start with this athleticism or this, you know, uh, they didn't do this many reps. It was, I want a world-class human. The rest of it, we, we can fit inside of a culture. Right, right. Because like, look at what a lot of these companies are doing. They're like, okay, well, we have... Um, you know, this many white people, we have some Indian people, we have a couple of black people, a couple, you know what I mean? Um, but they're all at the same fraternity at Stanford. Yep. That's not diversity. That's <laughs> not diversity. You know, yeah. so again, it's understanding what that is. Diversity is simple. Diversity is a love. Diversity and inclusion is a love for humanity. That's what it is. And just, you know, we see with our eyes the merest fraction of a human being. Mm. Right. So if we're going to judge them by, you know, their skin color, or their hair, or what, like that's a huge miss. And these yep. companies that do that are missing out on some exceptionally talented people. Yes, that's good. That's good. So as deck leadership grows, you guys decide, hey, it's it's growing and we should put this into a book. And you guys came out with the 12 second culture. Right. right. And it's so based on a lot of the same principles or. It is, it is, you know, like we've talked about, like failing quickly, mm -hmm. uh, the Department of Unrealistic Expectations. It's basically, you know, we had a lot of companies saying, you know, hearing, hearing them say, we want our people to operate like a pit crew. Yeah. Where these companies get it wrong is they think that, you know, they can implement a process um, that comes in and changes the landscape for them. Yes. But operating like a pit crew is elevating people over process. Yes. It's inspiring human brilliance. And, and that's what we go in there and we implore these companies to do. So, you know, what we do now, you know, a lot of them, Mike and I, what companies are finding is, you know, they're going out and they're hiring, uh, say, Simon Sinek in the first quarter. And he's yep. talking about developing your why. Well, and then the second quarter, you get someone like a Jocko Wilnick. And he's talking about, you know, carrying a guy with one arm out of Fallujah. And then the third quarter, you have Nick Saban. But there's no continuity of message. Right. Mike and I, what we're doing with a lot of companies now is we come in, you know, we do a module on diversity, then we do a module on efficiency, then we do a module on culture, and we do a module on kindness. And what companies are doing, what that allows is your company to unite around a singular language. So if I talk about your arrival mindset, right, like how did you show up today, Phil, your arrival mindset's, you know, awesome today, you know exactly what your coworkers talking about, because you've all been through the same experience, right? Yeah. Well, and I think just as what I've gathered, you know, what you're teaching is uh, sustainable and implementable, right? Sometimes people come in with a good idea, but it's the motivation factor, right? I mean, within an hour, a day, a week, depending on the type of hour, day or week you have, it, it washes away and you're just back to square one. You don't have things that are, I can implement this, you know, I can create a process to create the culture. Right, right. And you can only inspire that change. 
right? Yep. You can't, you know, if you force any type of change, you create actors, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be inspired change, but you inspire people by giving them the roadmap and showing them that it's closer than they think. And it's far simpler. It's caring for people, right? right? It's, it's these things like, you know, the last thing that we, we, we maybe missed out was on kindness, right? And there is, again, the myth in corporate America that kindness is weakness. I know some pretty bad dudes that walk on this planet and all of them are kind. Yeah. So these guys that say kindness is a weakness, like I said, I'd love to, you know, when they're wrestling, they do the Royal Rumble and you yeah. throw all the guys in the, I'd love those guys to meet my, the guys that they think are weak. And I'm pretty certain I know how it's going to go, but you know, it's, um, you know, it's having that emotional intelligence, that empathy, right? Like empathy isn't tolerating poor performance. Yeah. Empathy is understanding the human factors that drive performance, addressing those so that we can move forward together. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's helping young leaders, people that are newly promoted that have never led to be like, Hey, don't, don't lead like this, this, and this be a servant leader. And, 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 you know, that, that rising tide um, will lift all the ships in the company. You know, like one of my favorite quotes, because what we see a lot of is, you know, people are so worried about getting theirs. Yeah. Right? Well, if, I, if I'm too selfless, I will, they'll get theirs. And I won't get, you know, and there's a quote I love. And it says, out of abundance, I took abundance and yet abundance remained. Mm -hmm. I love that because yeah. if you knew how much there was out in the world, there's more than enough for all of us. And it, we're closer to going and getting it if we go together. That's awesome. I love it. That is good. So I have a pointed question for you. And this is something that over the last, I'd probably say three or four years now uh, was an idea I was introduced to. And it's just been a game changer for me. And so it's this, the idea is blissful dissatisfaction. Okay. And so the idea behind it is a lot of people don't ever get to the pinnacle of who they can become because they set a goal. And when they reach it, they plateau. Yeah. And then there's the complete other side of the spectrum, which I would guess just hearing your story and knowing mine, you and I probably fall into. And that is every time we hit a goal, we're so quickly to go for the next goal or to accomplish the next thing that we never take time to look back and say, holy cow, look at what all I've accomplished over the last 17 years, or, you know, however long it is. Right. So how do you balance that? Right. How do you balance not getting complacent once you hit a goal, but also at the same time, uh, not just constantly striving for the next thing and not taking any, you know, solitude in the things you've already accomplished. I, I think, you know, a, a big one there and a weapon in that fight is gratitude, hmm. right. And, and going to bed and, 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 you know, a lot of people write in gratitude journals. I write in one in the morning, yeah. you know, especially in this age of social media, so many of us are guilty. All we ever do is compare up, yep. never compare down. Right. Like so many of us are blessed beyond measure, but because we see the person on Instagram with the lake house or the Ferrari or whatever, we're, we're like, Oh God, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. And gratitude changes all that because you're grateful for this, you know, this life you, every one of us has something to be grateful for every yep. one of us. Um, and uh, you know, that allows you, that allows you perspective. Yeah. And, and I think when your perspective is in the right place, um, you're thankful for all you've accomplished, you know, and you rejoice in those goals. Um, but you strive, right? Like you're still, um, you, know, you don't want to make peace with mediocrity. You know, there's more to you. But yeah, I mean, I think gratitude and taking the time to, to, to acknowledge that is, is hugely important. That's good. That's good. Well, Sean, I have appreciated the heck out of your, uh, your time today and your story. I mean, 
fascinating. Uh, so many pivotal moments that have gotten you to the, uh, the spot that you're in today, but thanks again for being on. And like I said, I'd love to have you on a second time and get some of the uh, more detailed stories of things, but I appreciate the time today. We're super passionate about this. Uh, you need to get Mike on too. And anytime we can do anything for you, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you, Phil. There are so many great takeaways from Sean's story today. I, I think a few that really stuck out to me was when Sean talked about seeking out joy, not happiness. I enjoyed when he talked about paying attention to details on the small things, right? In NASCAR, that one second is the difference between first and sixth place. And what are the small things that we're doing in our life that can be very impactful if we paid more attention? Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.